9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf. This is your host, and we are joined, as we always are on Thursday, uh, by uh, Ryan Goodman, who is a professor at NYU Law School and the co-editor of Just Security, and he is coming to us now from very hip Brooklyn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. <laughs> uh, and from an even hipper location, um, we are also joined by Joyce White Vance, former uh, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, also uh, professor of law. And Joyce, you are in Alabama, right? That's right. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. Where it's got to be nicer than it is here, because it is cold and unpleasant here in New York City. Um, yeah, will... it's a shirt sleeves weather out here. I think we've got the better <laughs> side of it. Oh man, that is really painful. Well, um, <laughs> let's change. Let's change the subject then. Uh, uh, clearly, the subject uh, that is on everybody's mind is uh, the fact that yesterday the president of the United States, Donald Trump, became the third American president to uh, be impeached by the House of Representatives. Uh, he was impeached on uh, uh, two articles, as we've discussed in the past. Uh, and uh, it was pretty much a party-line vote, although there were two Democrats who voted with the Republicans, and Tulsi Gabbard made the bold and courageous statement to vote present. Um, not sure what that uh, got her, uh, but it does now leave us in an interesting place, which is, what next? It, and once upon a time, that seemed pretty simple. You would hand it off to the Senate, and the Senate would commence with a trial, which um, uh, would involve uh, jurors who were taking an oath to um, be objective and to serve the Constitution, and there would be the usual things that you might find at a trial, like, oh, I don't know, witnesses or evidence, uh, cases being presented, and so forth. But that doesn't seem where we're headed, does it, Joyce? No, it really doesn't. We seem to have taken a sharp turn uh, onto an on-ramp or maybe into oncoming traffic. And at this point, we don't know if uh, or when Nancy Pelosi will transmit those articles of impeachment to the Senate for a trial. Uh, Brian, what, what, do, will she? What do you think? Has she called you? <laughs> I haven't spoken with her today. Um, <laughs> but um, I do think it's up in the air, and I think she's uh, playing this extraordinarily well. But regardless of what I think about how she's playing it, she seems to be maintaining a kind of a constructive ambiguity, um, not uh, saying that these are necessarily her explicit conditions or terms that the uh, Senate set up uh, fair and full trial rules, uh, which gives her a bit more wiggle room as she does decide to move off that mark, but at the same time uh, does seem to be playing at, in terms of using this as a form of leverage to try to advance uh, the ball in terms of getting those 
kinds of rules in place and, and uh, the power to subpoena witnesses so that uh, the public can actually uh, get something that the Constitution envisions for the next stage. Uh, you know, I have actually a, a different view there, if you don't mind me jumping in. Not at all. Um, I've heard this leverage argument, and I think it does make sense on some level that she would try to get uh, at least more fair rules than what Republicans have offered so far, which is, hey, we're totally in the tank for Trump, right? That seems like a terrible playing field for a trial to occur on. But I'm not sure that she really has any ability to extract concessions from McConnell. You know, this is the guy who uh, didn't bring Merrick Garland up for a vote for an, an open Supreme Court seat. I wonder if Nancy Pelosi isn't really thinking about the law of averages and the law of evolution. And by that, I mean, Richard Nixon had tremendous support um, among Republicans until suddenly he didn't, until suddenly the facts got bad enough that they turned on him. There are a lot of shoes left to drop on this centipede that's the uh, uh, Trump administration's cavalier treatment of foreign policy and of other aspects of governance. I think that there's a lot of information out there. Democrats may be playing for time, hoping that some of it comes to light. And even if this only buys Speaker Pelosi a week or two, if that's enough time for, say, a John Bolton to come forward, or perhaps for something in Vice President Pence's phone call with President Zelensky to be revealed that's damaging, it could ultimately be a masterful stroke by Pelosi. What do you think of that, Ryan? And 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 yeah. and while you're pondering it, might it also be a mistake? So um, I think of I agree with uh, the the advantage or the effect um, that Joyce just described. I think of it as either one of two things: one, just that it is an added advantage of. Uh, Pelosi's strategy, um, because I'm not sure that she could ever explicitly say something like that, or that I would uh, say that that's a normatively desirable reason for her to take the strategy. So that's why I think of it as just like an incidental added advantage. But at the same time, I also think of it as one of the points of leverage over McConnell, so that McConnell knows that too. Um, and therefore, the longer that this is drawn out, the more risky it is for him, because I agree that I think there are other shoes in the centipede to drop. I think another one might be the likelihood that um, Giuliani might get indicted or that it leaks that he would be indicted, but for Bill Barr blocking the SDNY, um, all of which uh, could be damaging because it shifts public opinion, and then that shift in public opinion puts greater pressure on the vulnerable uh, Republicans. I also, you know, agree with the idea that Mitch McConnell is shameless, and that no amount of direct public pressure or shaming on on him as an individual is going to make him move one inch, make him blink. But I do think that the White House and the and President Trump are anxious and would like to have this move along. So I think the pressure on McConnell and the leverage comes from Trump wanting. Uh, this to be done with so that he can be acquitted quicker and not have this hanging over his head. Trump thinking, and I think mistakenly, that it's to his benefit to open up the aperture to allow for witnesses because then he can get under Biden and things like that. Um, so he is in some sense even um, favorable towards some of the terms 
that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are trying to set in terms of ability to get witnesses uh, into the trial. Uh, so that's the leverage I think is really on uh, Mitch McConnell. It's, it's indirect. It's not directly on him um, himself without these other actors or uh, variables in play. So Joyce, you know, um, that, you know, we, we can guess at the leverage and we can guess at how um, Pelosi might play it, what she's seeking and, 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 and what McConnell might go for. Um, but in the end, it seems likely that McConnell will end up with the upper hand one way or another. Uh, and we'll have his vision of this trial. Uh, what's the what's the worst case, and is it different from the most likely case? <laughs> yeah, I think they're two very different things. And and Ryan makes exactly the right point here, which is that the president has always been his own worst enemy, right? Where others would lie low and let things blow over or offer a defense. Trump sometimes inexplicably just sort of tromps right in his own worst enemy, making admissions on the White House lawn of, of his efforts to you know, work with foreign countries um, to get aid in his political battle against Biden. Uh, it seems like the people around him are always being called on, you know, clean up on aisle Trump, right? So <laughs> that, I think, is the prospect here where this trial could break bad if the president gets his way. And I think Ryan is right. He might open the door for Democrats to present some witnesses because he believes he'll be able to present, you know, perhaps Hunter Biden. It is important, I think, that we talk about what happens in trials, even when they're Senate impeachment trials. And that's that the evidence that can be presented is evidence that's relevant to the charges that have been brought. In other words, if you're charged with a bank robbery, you don't get to bring in evidence that you were a choir boy at an earlier point in your life. And you don't get to bring in evidence that somebody else who was in the bank a couple hours earlier was not a choir boy. That's not how this works. So something that'll hang up the president here, if this is a fair process, is the fact that only evidence and witnesses that are relevant to the charges, to the articles of impeachment that were passed in the House, should be admitted. And that's not Hunter Biden or any of this other wild goose chase the president wants to entertain. So, Ryan, let me ask you another question. Say, you know, I mean, McConnell doesn't seem to want to have any witnesses there. Um, and it doesn't seem like the Democrats had a lot of leverage there to switch him over unless three or four Republican senators come forth and say, no, we want to hear real evidence from real witnesses. So far, none of them have said that. Nobody has even shown the slightest inclination to say that. Um, so perhaps they're waiting, perhaps they're not. Do the Democrats have any leverage in getting witnesses? And do the Democrats have any recourse against jurors or jury foremen like McConnell who say, yeah, sure, I'll take an oath saying that I'm, I'm you know, going to uh, serve the Constitution and, and be objective, but I'm not. I'm really not objective. I'm on the record as saying I'm in the tank for the president. I'm actually coordinating the trial with the defendant. Can he just get away with that? Can it be challenged? So um, I can't, it's hard for me to envision a scenario or a mechanism to challenge 
those steps except for um, in the voting booth. Um, and I do think one gift that uh, McConnell has given us all is that the American public is now focused more on this question of setting the ground rules for the trial, not the next question after that, which is how will the senators vote, but first is the rules uh, so that we know what's, if there's going to actually be a fair and, and full trial. And that also focuses attention on the fact that it's not McConnell's call. He needs 51 um, members of Congress to uh, of, of the Senate to go along with him. And therefore, we should be focusing on, uh, for example, the most vulnerable Senate Republicans like Susan Collins and Cory Gardner and others. And it's, it's them. That's where I think the pressure should focus. And uh, if he were to get away with a completely sham trial, uh, then uh, it's on them. Um, and voters should be focused on that. Uh, so I think that that's to me, the key in all of this, and then that, that is the kind of the leverage um, in a certain sense. And, and, you know, I don't know to what degree I'd have to kind of study this a little bit more closely, but I think there's another dimension to which Nancy Pelosi's approach once again enhances that kind of leverage, which is the closer those um, vulnerable Republicans and other Republicans get to the general elections, uh, the more trouble they're in if they're seen to uh, go along with this uh, McConnell, Lindsey Graham charade. Uh, so I think that's, to me, where the action is at. Well, it's interesting because it essentially says it's political. And you could imagine the ads, they could be quite effective. You know, an ad of Susan Collins' opponent saying, you know, if only three Republican, four Republicans had stepped forward, the Senate trial wouldn't have been a sham. Susan Collins could have been one of them. She chose not to be. She's part of the sham. That that you know that could be quite effective. But I, I just want to check with you, Joyce. Do you also think there's no legal avenue, either within uh, the 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 Senate itself or via court, to challenge the approach McConnell? seems to be heading towards. So I tend to agree with Ryan that at least right now, the only remedy for falsely swearing an oath um, happens when people vote in this next round of elections. Uh, you know, sort of the uh, overhanging dark cloud that we don't talk about too often, although it comes up in the Giuliani situation, is Bill Barr's Justice Department and their lack of willingness to engage in any form of meaningful oversight of misconduct committed by this administration or its allies. Um, I have very mixed feelings, probably leaning heavily towards negative at the prospect of indicting members of Congress uh, for falsely swearing an, an oath. I think that aside from speech and, and debate protection, that just is a horrible path to go down. By the same token, I think that there are prudential steps that could be taken and, and advice that could be provided, counseling um, that could be used to uh, make the point that having sort of already stood up and, and taken aside as to what they believe is the ine inevitable outcome of this proceeding, it's now incumbent 
upon McConnell and others in the Senate to go back and create a fair process. The sort of bright, I think that that's the cloud, right? The, the bright spot here is polling that shows that something like 71% of the American people and a healthy majority of Republicans and independents all want to see witnesses in this trial. Americans understand what a fair trial looks like. And this notion that you would keep evidence, both documents and witnesses, from coming to light. If that's the process that happens in the Senate, then Trump will never be able to successfully argue that he's been exonerated. That, I think, is the ultimate price that they pay for an unfair process. Americans will say he cheated in the trial, and, you know, maybe he cheated in Ukraine, too, or tried to cheat in Ukraine so he could cheat in the election. I I do want to say, by the way, that the thesis that uh, was brought up earlier that, you know, even if this buys two weeks, things can happen uh, in this case, uh, is borne out by the fact that we're 17 minutes into this uh, episode, and as we are recording it on a Thursday evening, as 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 we do, a story is broken in the Washington Post saying that uh, White House officials um, uh, uh, feared and in some cases knew that the president's views on Ukraine and the 2016 campaign came from Putin, and to quote the story, one former senior White House official said, Trump even stated so explicitly at one point, saying he knew mm. Ukraine was the real culprit because, quote, Putin told me. Um, so it's not that that... Well, that's heart-stopping, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not that that changes the substance of anything that we know, but it does confirm, um, you know... Where the Trump story came from, and uh, you know that you know Trump's embrace of this fanciful story that Ukraine was the one that hacked uh, is yet another example of of Russian propaganda directly from the top. Uh, mm. Either of you have anything you wish to comment on this, or or do you just wish to pat yourselves on the back for? having had the (laughs) foresight 17 minutes ago to predict this. This might have meant something back in the era where the Republican Party wasn't aligned with Russia. But now that Tucker Carlson has gone on television and and, talked about Russia in such glowing terms, maybe this is just uh, an additional benefit of the Trump era. I mean, I hate to say it, but I've become hardened and cynical about uh, what has happened with this Republican Party. Um, you don't sound hardened and cynical to me, Joyce. Uh, this, I appreciate that. I'm pretty cynical. <laughs> but, 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 Ryan, you know, it, it, it is an interesting thing. I mean, you know, at this point, with 100% of the Republicans in the House backing Trump and this having been the story, and uh, McConnell seeking uh, to have 100% back him in the, in the Senate trial, and nobody daring to stand up to the president— uh, stories like this break, and all it does is underscore the case that Joyce has just made that, you know, Tucker Carlson and others have articulated. The Republican Party is the Putin Party. Uh, as, as Nancy Pelosi said, all roads lead to Putin. Uh, the, the road started for Trump with Putin. It continues to be influenced by Putin. He doesn't listen to the CIA. He doesn't listen to the director of national intelligence. He doesn't listen to his aides. 
um, he, he continues to be driven by a guy whose objective is to undermine the United States and has been, it has been his objective his entire career. That's right. And, um, and I did think kind of late in the uh, public hearings um, and the process, the uh, House Intelligence Committee began to frame uh, the Ukraine inquiry uh, for the public to understand the connections back to Russia. And I think these uh, kinds of stories uh, are a great example of one dimension for Mitch McConnell that's fraught with risk in the kinds of stories and the narrative that can be understood by the American public um, that needs to be educated, unfortunately, to a greater degree about um, the connection to Russia. And then, unfortunately, because of the likes of Tucker Carlson, uh, the threat from Russia. Um, and... You know, I've always thought that, as Joyce had said, as as just said as well, that the, in some ways, the you know Mitch McConnell that we think that he has is wielding all this power in this moment, he's in a like a no-win situation because I agree that an acquittal without anything that looks like a real trial in the Senate um, is not a positive outcome for the president, because he doesn't then really get to claim that uh, it, he was like justly acquitted or anything like that, or that it was a true process. And the more the frame is understood as connected to Rus- Russia, then it's, you know, it is hashtag Moscow Mitch um, fi- having the fix in to uh, get his buddy Trump off the hook. And uh, you know, this story, uh, I should, should just say that, the, you know, the story that's in the Post right now um, resonates with uh, George Kent's testimony. He said that Fiona Hill had said the same thing to him, that the difference between the two phone calls between Trump and Zelensky, uh, because the first phone call in April congratulating Zelensky was chummy, um, and then the second one was not in Trump by May 23rd, and the meeting with the three amigos had already been turned off. Um, towards uh, Zelensky was because of Putin, um, that Putin had spoken directly to Trump in the intervening period, and that's what had done it. So this story, you know, is not just on its own, but it builds on other uh, information that we have. And then also in the last few days is the Justice Department telling a court that Lev Parnas um, hid from the government that he had been paid a million dollars in September um, from uh, Dmitry Firtash, who's linked at a minimum to the top levels of Russian organized crime, and a Republican senator sent a letter uh, to Jeff Sessions as attorney general back in the day saying that um, Firtash was linked to Putin himself. And Lev Parnas, that's in September, he gets a million dollars from Firtash. In October, Lev Parnas's Attorney John Dowd, who's the former attorney for the president, sent a letter to Congress saying that Lev Parnas was doing his work with Giuliani on behalf of the president. So the all roads leads to Russia <laughs> angle is real. And the more that's understood, and who knows what other you know, shoes on the centipede are coming, um, I think that's, that's a real concern. And, and, and more people are saying uh, this line, which is that it's not pre- just President Trump who's on trial at the Senate, it's the Republican leadership that's on trial uh, to see whether or not they're going to live up to their constitutional oaths. And I think that's uh, true. 
You know, I have to say the centipede metaphor is really nice, but it evokes the movie Human Centipede for me, which, of course, I've never seen, uh, but is the, <laughs> the, the, is the famous movie where human beings are attached um, uh, uh, mouth to butt and uh, that you know, excrement is processed through a long chain of them, uh, which also evokes the Republican Party, frankly, in 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 a, in, a, in a certain way. Uh, but having said that, and setting that metaphor, leaving so, that one right there, just leaving it. <laughs> it's just you know, I just had to acknowledge it because I'm sure, knowing our listeners, some of them were thinking it. That you know, the, another thing strikes me here, and that is. You know, the Republicans think they have a strategy, and Trump thinks he has a strategy now. And the strategy is, well, we're going to go into the Senate. We're not going to have any witnesses. We're going to ram this thing through. And then exoneration, just like he felt like, you know, the day after Mueller was done. Exoneration. And then he committed a new crime that day, uh, or at least, you know, triggered an investigation and that very day, the day after Mueller testified in front of the Congress with his call to Zelensky. Well, you know, maybe the flaw in that is what the Republicans are doing now is declaring blind allegiance to somebody, and we know that each passing week is going to reveal something new, whether it's this Washington Post story or whether it's what Ryan was talking about. There is a Rudy Giuliani story out there. Parnas apparently, you know, fired the two lawyers he had from the Trump team. Uh, and has decided or seems to be inclined to, um, to, to testify and to turn over, uh, roll over on, the, uh, uh, on his colleagues. Um, his, 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 his former sidekick is sticking with Giuliani, apparently. But, you know, that could produce other things. And we don't know what happened. You know, I mean, I, one of the things that strikes me, Joyce, as we think about all of this, is that the... The Ukraine story, which led to impeachment, was unknown to us three months ago today, right? So, I mean, right? Right. November, October, September, right? It broke. Nobody anticipated that we would be having a Christmas impeachment at Halloween, I think, or maybe maybe a little bit earlier than well, Halloween. Well, I think the story, you know, Adam Schiff broke the story uh, on September 13th, late at night on September 13th. And so, you know, on September 12th, we didn't know we were heading here. Uh, and mm-hmm. this, this, this is the reality of life in Trump times. Uh, and that maybe, you know, the, 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 the GOP is signing up wholeheartedly for a defense of somebody who is almost certain to make them look worse with every passing day. Yeah, I, I think that that's inevitably true. And I sometimes wonder if historians won't look back and wonder why it took us so long, right? And also why it took us so long to connect the dots, the through line from Trump's, you know, Russia, are you listening comment during the campaign, to the Mueller investigation, to what's going on today. There are an awful lot of breadcrumbs starting, frankly, at least as early as the Republican convention, where there's a change in longstanding uh, Republican Party policies and the platform of the, uh, of the uh, parties or the plank of the party's platform regarding Ukraine changes in a way that's decidedly pro-Russian. Uh, the Mueller report, far from exonerating the president, as those of us who've read it know, uh, concludes that as to con- collusion, 
that there was a pronounced effort to keep them from getting evidence. And, and Mueller early on and up front says, look, a lot of evidence wasn't available to us. People hid it. It was extraterritorial. It was destroyed. If we'd been able to get that, we might have looked at these facts differently. And he concludes that he doesn't have evidence to prove that there is a conspiracy between members of the campaign and Russia. But the factual layout in the report shows a lot of connection, a lot of collusion, for lack of a better word, even if it's not a criminal conspiracy. And then we just see an incredible mountain of obstruction of justice. If the president did nothing wrong during the campaign, he's certainly fearful of something that's going to come to light because this is a full court press on obstruction. And I'm not sure, you know, it's become popular for us, and I've done this too, to say, and then look what he did the next day after Mueller testified. He went out and did it again. I don't know that he ever stopped. I think it's just that same Putin influence through line of conduct here with this really happy accident that maybe he can use it to get at Joe Biden, who's his leading rival at this point in time. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, looks looks like that'll stay the case. But 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 who knows? Um, uh, Ryan, maybe just as a as a sort of a footnote to this whole thing, uh, we have, um, uh, you know, people like Lindsey Graham saying that if 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 Nancy Pelosi withholds the articles, that this would amount to um, extortion. Uh, of, of a sort, uh, you know, which is, I don't know, d- does have a bit of a ring of uh, a sort of dark and sick irony to it. Um, but 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 both Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell are shocked, shocked that anybody would play fast and loose uh, with congressional rules. Uh, and I was just wondering if you had a thought about, you know, that in light of their what they've said. Yeah, I think... Um I, I just think that it's there's something just obviously ludicrous in Graham's statement, um, in the sense that one, you know, they've tried to claim that a trial is not a fact-finding uh, vehicle, and therefore that's the reason why there shouldn't be new witnesses. Um, it's just it's just such a ridiculous affront to the constitutional structure and you know we don't have too many precedents involving a a a, a presidential impeachment but the clinton impeachment process included three uh witnesses at the senate trial uh just by way of example and then uh the you know the violation of the oaths um of jurors which are these solemn oaths that the senators are to take and george conway has a very good piece in the atlantic today about this very question of whether or not these senators are going to just straight up violate their oath. Um, And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell declaring today in his long statement that there's only one choice for the Senate, um, suggesting that um, the very impeachment itself was invalid in the House or illegitimate so that their one choice is Either he's saying uh, acquittal or he's saying something even more dramatic, uh, which would be something like a non-recognition of the referral or something. But he was vague in, in, that, in that regard. So, so what they have done to the 
constitution in this moment, of course the House would use some kinds of self-help mechanisms like withholding or delaying the referral, as I would imagine this and that Joyce can speak to, but like what a prosecutor would have to go through in thinking about whether to bring a case because you know something's very tainted potentially about the jurors, the jury, the judge. I don't think this is even playing politics. I just think it's a sound, pragmatic exercise of the House's formal powers as to determine whether or not they want to, uh, why would they want to, uh, under these conditions, send the referral over to such a travesty. Um, so I think that's you know the real situation, and um, Lindsey Graham's griping about it or calling it extortion um, seems uh, you know just really off base. Now let, let me just uh, sort of circle back to the Putin uh, information from another perspective, uh, Joyce, because I wanted to get your comment on this. You know the Republicans are like saying this is a sham impeachment; it shouldn't. Uh, take place, uh, the most politicized impeachment in history, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you look at impeachment uh, and you were trying to pick a sham impeachment out of the list, you'd probably end up with Clinton. And, you know, I mean, you know, he did some odious things, um, but it was it was it was kind of lower down on the scale of of damaging the United States uh, than than the other cases in which this has arisen. But this is the only instance of an impeachment that has involved a threat to U.S. national security. It's the only instance of an impeachment that actually involves U.S. international interests. Uh, It clearly ties directly to the Putin case, and I was more in the camp that it would be good to see some of the Mueller case tied into this impeachment because they fit together. But I'm I'm just wondering, you know, as we sort of as as sort of history looks back at this, and increasing revelations occur that Trump was wittingly or otherwise um, following the guidance or doing the bidding of somebody like Putin, that it does underscore that what was going on here, what's wrong here, uh, is something that is grievously damaging to U.S. national interests to U.S. ally Ukraine, to, by extension, Europe, who sees Ukraine as a buffer between them uh, and Russia, to America's standing in the world as, as, a, as a defender of that alliance and as a country uh, that has priorities that value treaty alliances and, and, and um, shared values above anything else. Um, and and that, that you know, honestly, in listening to all of this, the takes on this last night, this just wasn't emphasized that much. And perhaps we can use this Putin development to cast a light on it. Don't it? it this is special. This is a different kind of impeachment, isn't it? It is. It's it is the worst case scenario, right? This is a president who impairs our national security. Um, whatever you thought about Clinton and the blue dress and perjury, if you agreed that he needed to be impeached, just like Lindsey Graham, you thought it was about cleansing the office, then it's incomprehensible that you wouldn't support impeachment for a president who was willing to impair our national security for what? For the prospect of being able to cheat in an election. It is, I think, um, 
uh, as you point out, very, very serious to have a president who would take steps that could potentially damage our national security. And impeachment is warranted on that basis. And at the same time, it serves to point out the hypocrisy inside of the Republican Party. Hypocrisy, though, maybe doesn't capture it. I thought Nancy Pelosi did a good job this morning when she said that the founding fathers contemplated a president who could be corrupt, but they never contemplated a Senate, a Republican Party that would go along and, in essence, enable him. And that's really what's brought us to the point in time where Trump can take steps that could so fundamentally damage our national security. It's because Mitch McConnell and his buddies, Mitch McConnell and his buddies are willing to let that happen. Ryan, one of the other sort of bits of conventional wisdom about all of this is uh, that somehow pursuing the impeachment was going to hurt the Democrats, hurt those who pursued the impeachment, uh, and it would inflame Trump's base. So the other bit of news that broke while we were sitting here discussing how news breaks frequently in this administration uh, is that an evangelical uh, publication, a leading evangelical publication, uh, Christianity Today, uh, just called in a in an editorial for Trump's removal based on moral grounds. Mm. Uh, now, this is a big deal. It's a big publication. They, they called for Clinton's removal based on moral grounds 20 mm. years ago, and they say it's time to say what we said 20 years ago when a president's character was revealed for what it was. Uh, they mm. attack Trump's character. Uh, obviously, a lot of people have been having a hard time reconciling the principles of Christianity and being an evangelical with the behavior of Donald Trump, something seems to have broken here. Uh, perhaps this is another example of where the conventional wisdom is wrong. What do you think? Um, I guess I've succumbed to the conventional wisdom in some sense of just that it would harden people's positions on either side, but this would be um, good to... Uh, since it has been to me such a befuddlement that um, the evangelical movement would support uh, Trump, not only in his, you know, given all the serious problems about his moral character, uh, but uh, the other idea that he's, I mean, he really is, a th he truly, really is a threat to the country. And you know, the absence of Trump in this circumstance is Mike Pence. So it's, and I understand that for some evangelicals and others, the idea is that um, maybe God works through imperfect people to still produce uh, positive effects. Um, but uh, this, it just seems so intolerable. Um, and I do think that, you know, a, any objective assessment of the record here, uh, would, you would think, would come to the same conclusion. It's why I think so many Republican leaders in public life who are not elected officials have um, come out in support of impeachment, and that the only difference between them and the House members is that the House members are beholden to Trump and party uh, to maintain their lockstep position. So uh, this would be um, great, and also just the way in which you worded um, the this development, David, makes me think of you know maybe for many a pe uh, person uh, Michelle Obama's statement in a certain sense. I, I don't remember the exact words, but that the 
presidency doesn't change who your character is. It reveals who your char- what, what your character is. Um, and I think it's just been revealed uh, in so many ways that how does one turn away from it? So the idea that a publication like that would acknowledge it is uh, a great sign in a certain sense. It's true, although revealing Trump's character has not exactly required, you know, forensic investigation. It's been, <laughs> you know, on, displ- yeah. on, on display for some time. Um, despite the fact that we resent you for your good weather, Joyce, I'll give you the last word here. You live in a state um, where uh, the views of evangelicals carry a lot of weight and where uh, uh, the Trump line has been towed pretty hard, um, uh, with with one or two notable That's exceptions. Uh, do, you, do you have you you know even just down there have you have you noticed anything changing as a result of this uh, impeachment? Is this this uh, this this column in Christianity Today a sign of something bigger, or or basically are people kind of holding to where they were? So I'm interested to read that column because I, it seems to me that it's distinct from impeachment, right? We don't impeach presidents for their character. Typically, these articles of impeachment don't include that. That sounds like maybe 25th Amendment territory or voting territory. Um, my reaction to that is sort of like a, what took them so long, right? Because Trump has always been fundamentally oppositional to the values that are held in the evangelical community. What I've heard people say is, well, presidents are people. People aren't perfect. And Trump is God's tool to achieve many goals that we thought were, were worthy. He's, in essence, an imperfect vessel. So that has always been the rationale. It sounds like perhaps that has become too much to stomach at this point in time for some people. But but I think, frankly, at, at least here in Alabama, among my friends in the evangelical community, the views haven't changed. They've always been in one of two areas. Either people were against Trump because he showed them who he was during the campaign, and that was something that they simply couldn't tolerate and they voted against him. Maybe they didn't vote for Hillary, but they found some way to vote against Trump. On the other hand, there were other people who were willing um, to go ahead and to assume all of the bad things that were involved in the Trump presidency in order to get federal judges on on the bench. Many people who were single-issue voters and wanted to see um, abortion overruled were willing to make great sacrifices um, to achieve that goal. And I heard it said, I think, really eloquently on Morning Joe yesterday, and I wish I could remember who had said this, but but the comment was that Trump was someone who could pump the brakes on social change that people were having a hard time with, whether that was transgender people, you know, using your bathroom um, or racial sorts of issues or LGBTQ community issues that they liked the fact that Trump was pumping the brakes. So they tolerated the good or they tolerated the bad to get the good. Well, uh, we will have to see how this develops. Uh, I, I think one of the lessons uh, of this uh, episode, or one of the points that was made and well taken, is that this is a centipede and there are uh, innumerable shoes yet to drop this week, this month, over the next several months, and between now and the election. Uh, and well, you know, some will affect the outcome of what happens in the Senate, Some will affect subsequent trials. Some will affect the election. 
and some ultimately will affect how history views this period. Uh, we're lucky to be able to uh, view these things in real time with the wise uh, and insightful observations of, of people like Joyce and, and Ryan. Um, and uh, uh, we uh, will be back with this podcast after the holidays. We'll take a week off for the holidays uh, or so, and, and, and we'll continue with it unless some big thing happens in the interim and that requires us uh, to do something. So for now, we'll wish you all uh, happy holidays, happy new year. Um, and uh, we look forward to being back with you in 2020. Uh, frankly, uh, while many good things happened in the 20 teens, uh, given the last couple of years, I'm perfectly happy to see them go. Uh, uh, thanks, Joyce. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so Thank much. You, uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. For more, go to the dsrnetwork.com and you can listen to other podcasts. You can uh, read other content. You can see what we've got coming up. And I can tell you that in 2020, what you're going to be getting from the DSR Network is going to expand and be really exciting and can involve you directly. So watch that space. Bye-bye. <laughs>